Today, we return to our sermon series titled, uh, The Church, Metaphors of the Beloved. Previously, we've studied a lot of different things. We've studied how the church is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the flock of Christ, the temple of God, the priesthood of God. And today, we turn our attention to another metaphor, that the church is the vineyard of God. Now, eventually, we will get to the words of Jesus that Hannah Faye read earlier from John 15, where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. But we're going to spend the bulk of our time in the Old Testament. You know, the Old Testament speaks uh, of the people of God being God's vineyard. Sadly, the people of God have not always been a big and beautiful, faithful, fruitful vineyard. Today, we turn to Isaiah chapter 27. It was written around 750 B.C. It was a time when the nation of Israel was actually divided into two kingdoms. There was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And at that time, they were, they were enjoying prosperity. Everything was going really good. There was pretty much peace in their land, but that was all about to end. Isaiah would prophesy that the Assyrians from the north would attack the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom would find itself trying to get military help from Egypt of all places. So why this coming doom? Why would God's people eventually end up suffering in exile in foreign lands? Why would this beautiful temple in Jerusalem eventually become desolate? Because the people of God had turned from God. And God lets them experience what life would be like when he is no longer a part of their lives. And you can imagine everything falls apart. Now, chapter 27 breaks into this um, big prophecy of Isaiah of doom and gloom, and it's meant to give the nation a hope. Though she will suffer for her foolishness, God's love is still upon her. And, and so the, the, the words of Isaiah point towards a day in the future. It keeps saying that day, that day, that day. It's a day yet to come when, when God restores the vineyards. Now, some of this prophecy has taken place in the New Testament church, but much of it still waits for that final day when God restores and renews the world. Now, as we study this, my hope is that we'll be, be presented with a loving, glorious, powerful picture of how God has pledged to cultivate his vineyard, the church. Isaiah chapter 27. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it, I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contend with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. 
Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of their sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken, like the wilderness. There the calf grazes. There it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make fire of them. For this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who are lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, this is a glorious word. It rings beautiful in our ears. It, it encompasses so many things. A lot of them we don't quite understand just yet. Uh, so we ask that you would grant us favor in this hour that your people, your vineyard, um, would receive from you an overflowing of nutrition from this, your word given to us. May we understand it and embrace it, and may we walk in your ways. As a result of it, we pray. Amen. I did it my way. You all know that song, right? Maybe not if you're younger. Uh, if you're the Justin Timberlake crowd, you might not know Frank Sinatra, but uh, in Frank Sinatra's most iconic song, he sings with great, with, with great confidence the repeated chorus, I did it my way. Now in my grace group this week, one member said he was asked by a son to sing that song at his father's funeral, and he said, no. Why is it a bad idea to sing, I did it my way at your funeral? Maybe I don't need to explain it. We're all chuckling. Well... Because what you were saying is that with the one life God gave you to live, you pridefully say you did it without God. The words of Sinatra's song speak of a person who is confident. They tried their best and have no regrets, or maybe a few. But at the end of his life, he boasts that he has, quote, said the things he truly feels and not the words of one who needs. It's a ballad of one cocky, showy rebel. No need to kneel in prayer to a, the God who created him. I did it my way is how much of the world lives. <laughs> Just watch me succeed. I've got everything I need. And, and if I follow my life's plan, <clears throat> if I get just a little bit of good luck, well, just watch me go. Now, we all, to varying degrees, have the urge to live our lives to the music I did it my way, right? To live as if there is no God above to whom we are accountable. Even Christians can do this. Do you see this tendency in your own life? Oh, the gospel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, it gives us a far better song to sing. In verse 2, we read, in that day, what does it say? 
a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. Other translations say a fruitful vineyard. But notice the Lord doesn't say meditate upon it or write a book report or an essay on it. The Lord says sing of it. You all know that feeling when that song comes on the radio that just gets at you. Like maybe like before you go out with your friends, it like pumps you up as you're doing your hair. All right, not the guys, maybe the girls. But it captures your whole soul, does it not? That's what we're seeing here. God has a song for us to sing that captures us, body and, and soul. A song, a song that he gives us to be on our hearts and lips. And, and the song is that, that the people of God are his pleasant vineyard, and it's under God's care. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Because we are the vineyard of God, we are to entrust our lives to his care. And we're going to look at that under three headings. First, God is the keeper, God is the pruner, and God is the restorer. First, God is the keeper. Because God is the keeper of his vineyard, we are to entrust ourselves to his care. And the first thing I want us to understand is that God personally cares for his vineyard. You know, unlike a vegetable garden or a flower garden, a vineyard takes an awful lot of time and energy to grow. The vine dresser must spend years working the vines, shaping them, pruning them, getting them to grow along the trellis just right. The vine dresser is constantly uh, making sure that, that the vineyard is cared for. And guess what? It's only the wealthy who could pretty much afford vineyards. And since they were significant investments, they would go to great lengths to protect them. They would typically build large stone walls all around the vineyards in order to keep those animals away. We know what that's like here on the East End, right? Keep those deers away. Got to build a high fence. They would also build watchtowers and hire people to stand in the watchtower and watch over their vineyards. And so here in Isaiah, God wants his people to rejoice, to sing over the fact that his people are his vineyard and he is its keeper. That's what he shows us in verse 3 and actually describes what keeping it looks like. He says, I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day. God is saying, I'm both the gardener and the security guard. He's always watching over us night and day. He never clocks out. He never checks his Instagram feed. Night and day, he watches over it. This is a remarkable image for us to have in our minds. And what it means for us today is that we, the people of God, the church, are under God's watchful care every minute of every day. I think it's important for us to understand this. Why? Well, do we not often find ourselves in fearful situations? <laughs> like in my family, my wife Leslie and I, we've got three kids now uh, in college or, or about ready to go into college. And the big fear is, will we have enough money, right? Now, after college, there's another fearful situation. That's something else. I have three daughters, uh, <clears throat> weddings, you know. Will there be enough money uh, to pay for the weddings, you know? Uh, it's a time when you kind of wish you were a caterer instead of a preacher. But anyway, or a photographer. It's true, right? There's always something pressing in on us that causes us to question or doubt to whether God is actually taking care of us, right? 
But here we have it. God says, he sings of it. God is always protecting you. He's providing you with everything you need to grow spiritually and to bear fruit. Listen, not everything you want, but everything you need. He keeps you every moment of every day. He keeps you when you don't, make, don't pass the test or when you don't make the team. He is keeping, when you don't, keeping you when you don't get accepted to the university or don't get that job promotion. He will keep you when you have to enter the hospital for a procedure like I have to tomorrow. And, and when it's your turn to be laid in a casket, he will, he will keep you for all eternity. God is the great gardener, the vineyard dresser, who, who is always keeping his vineyard, the church. Now listen, try to process this. I think you'll understand this. To the degree you believe God is keeping you and caring for you is the degree to which you will pour yourself out in care for others, right? When you trust that God is keeping you, you can lay down your life for others. You become one who bears pleasant fruit. But if God is not your keeper, you will always be focused upon you. You will be your own keeper. And guess what? That comes with great anxiety and worry. It comes with either great pride, look at me, or great remorse, oh, look at me, or both. But when God is your keeper, he will always keep you. The other truth concerning God being our keeper is that his, his vineyard enjoys his great grace. Where do we see that? Well, we see that God keeps us in his grace in verse 4. God sings. God sings this, all right? I have no wrath. All right, it's kind of a crazy thing to sing. But what is he saying? Well, today we kind of scratch our heads. But in... Isaiah's day, the people would have marveled, right? See, this song in, in, in chapter 27 is actually a remix of a song in chapter 5. In chapter 5, Isaiah sings of the current state of Israel, God's garden. He begins by singing about how God has loved this garden and provides for the vineyard. And, and, but then as the song moves along, we see that, that the vineyard is actually rotten and overrun. His people had forsaken God, and they've chased after false gods. And now God is about to tear down the walls and allow the thorns and briars of other nations to come and to attack his people and to take them into captivity. His people will experience the horrors of their having turned from God. That's chapter 5. But when, then we get to chapter 7, God is singing the vineyard song, part 2. And here we see God's grace is going to come for his people. In that day to come, I have no wrath. God's mercy and grace is coming. And eventually we're going to see here that, that even God's enemies are invited in. God said, would that I had thorns and briars to battle. Where are they? They're not here. I would march against them and burn them up together. God is saying that on that day to come, all of God's enemies will be no more. This is obviously uh, future-oriented. There are still thorns and thistles and briars here on earth, people in, in systems that are against God. But he says there's a day coming there will be no more enemies of God on earth. It's the day when Christ returns to renew and to restore this whole planet. And God's people will rise from the dead 
But on that day, when Christ returns, there will be thorns and briars that will be used for kindling for a fire. Now, when modern people read this, they, they accuse God. They're like, man, your God is just way too harsh. My God would never, my God would never punish anyone, they insist. But let me point to the true heart of God here, right? At the center of God's heart is love, not wrath. Please don't leave here this morning without marveling at God's grace in verse 5. First verse 4. Would that I had thorns or briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. Or, did you catch that? Or, there's another option. What is it? Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. For all who insist that God is a mean, tyrannical, angry, judgmental hothead can contend with these words. God offers peace to anyone who would lay down their arms and make peace. The problem isn't with God, it's with us. And listen, God is emphatic with this statement. How do we know? Well, in Isaiah's day, they didn't have like all caps. You know, you got that friend who always texts you in all caps, right? Uh, they didn't have emojis or animated GIFs. They didn't even have the lowly exclamation point, right? So the way they would emphasize something would be by repeating it. And that's what God does. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. That's what God says. Let them make peace with me. All caps. <laughs> you know, heart emoji. Dancing Snoopy gif, right? You guys seen that one? I know you have. <laughs> All right. Um, if by faith in Christ you belong to the vineyard of God, then the promise of this song is yours. I have no wrath, God says. God has every right to be angry at us human beings. We live selfish lives for our own glory. We deserve God's anger and his punishment. But God says, I have no wrath towards his vineyard. This is because God in his grace has poured out his anger towards our sin upon his own son Jesus on the cross. And so when God now looks at his vineyard, he looks at us, he sees his church, and he sees Christ in us and upon us. Isn't that a wonderful thought? We are God's vineyard, and God is keeping us in his grace. So God is the keeper of the vineyard, his people. God is also the pruner. Because God is the pruner, we are to entrust ourselves to his care. You know, my family has a small vegetable garden every year. Uh, it's not very prolific. Uh, usually it doesn't do too well. I really don't care what goes in it, as long as there's like three or four tomato plants. And I really don't know a whole lot about tomato plants other than sunshine and watering. And then one thing my dad taught me as a kid, my dad says, you've, 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 got, to, you've got to pinch the suckers. And, um, and I came to realize that he didn't make up that term. Uh, suckers are what tomato farmers talk about. They know all about them. Um, tomato farmers call these little stalks that start to grow where the branches fork off. Um, they, they call them suckers. And to the untrained eye, they can, they can look like a branch that's going to bear fruit, but they're actually not fruit-producing growth. They run to wood, is what they say. 
And so if you don't pinch off these suckers when they are small, what happens? They, they will grow and grow, and they will suck all the sap and the nutrients and the energy that should be going towards the actual tomatoes, the fruit. And what we see in scriptures is that since God is our heavenly father, he prunes us for our good. He prunes us so our lives don't run to wood. He prunes us so that we as his people would bear much fruit. Look at the wonderful goal in verse 6. In the days to come, Jacob, he's speaking for all of Israel, he's speaking for us, the vineyard, shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. That's quite an astonishing statement. Do we believe that? My friends, God is doing that right now. In his church, God's vineyard, Christ is alive and at work. And he's putting forth shoots all over the world. And as the branches in God's vineyard become more and more like Christ, the whole world is filled with the fruitfulness of Christ. That is why God prunes us so that we become more fruitful. And so the world will be blessed by God through us, his vineyard. And so our greatest prayer is also the one we should maybe be a little fearful of, right? Our greatest prayer is to ask God to prune us. See, we need it. And thankfully, if you belong to God's kingdom, he will prune you. In his goodness, in his grace, in his love, he prunes us so that we stop chasing after all the false idols, the things we bow down to in this world. He prunes us so that we stop living the I did it my way life. So he prunes away at us. And yes, it hurts. And it's true, right? At times it feels like God's our enemy, our adversary, but he's not. Listen, God does not punish us. He disciplines us for our good. And we receive only as much pruning as we need in the moment. And by his pruning, we are changed. Look at verse 9. Here we see how God's grace in our lives changes us. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. God is saying, my people will have their sins forgiven. This grace, this is the gospel. Though we deserve condemnation, God's mercy comes to us. He atones for our sin. Obviously, he's pointing to Jesus in the future. He describes how the gospel changes us. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this, listen, this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. All right? He's about to show us, describe to us, how having our sins forgiven deeply changes us. What is the fruit that is produced in us? Well, the idols that used to captivate us, we tear them down, willingly, joyfully. Anything that would distract us from our one devotion to God, we say, no more. Right? That's what we see here. Those who belong to the vineyard, here's what he says, make all the stones of the altars like chalk stones, crushed to pieces. The Asherim, that's a goddess in, um, in Canaan, uh, or the incense altars, none of them will remain standing. See that? God's grace has the effect of causing us to stop worshiping other gods. Money, career, Instagram-worthy posts. 
We removed the song, I Did It My Way, from the playlist of our lives, right? God's grace causes us to tear down the altars that we used to bow before, like chalk stones crushed to pieces. That is why God graciously prunes us. He knows this is best for us. He knows that false gods will only leave us feeling broken and hurting. But when God prunes us, we see how foolish we are, once again, (laughs) to live for these other gods on earth. And we delight in being his vineyard, and we sing of it. So God is the keeper of the vineyard. God is the pruner of the vineyard. And lastly, God is the restorer. Because God is the restorer, we are to entrust our lives to his care. You know, if you're not careful, you can waste half of your day on on a Saturday watching HGTV. (laughs) Anybody ever? Yeah. I'm getting a few nods out there, right? Uh, Especially when there's like back-to-back episode of everyone's favorite show, Fixer Upper, right? On Fixer Upper, Chip and Joanna Gaines, they they take messed up, broken homes, and and they paint a picture of what it would look like um, when everything is demoed and then restored. The couple who needs needs a new home, the couple buys into this plan, and they let Chip and Joanna Gaines work their restoration, magic, and then they begin to live in eager expectation of that day to come when they can move in, right? In Isaiah 27, we're given a description from God as to what the world will be like. The plan is presented to us so that we can buy into it and hold on to it all the days of our lives. The Lord says he will take all that's messed up on earth and remove it forever And then the Lord says that his vineyard will fill the whole earth as his people live fruitful lives for all eternity. First, the Lord will remove all that is messed up. In other words, God will judge and remove all that opposes him. Now, many people, like I said, will say God God would never judge anyone. I know perhaps maybe some people here feel that way as well. But can I say that if you think that God must not judge people, that you, in a way, lack discernment. I mean, think about it. We human beings, we judge things every day of our life. This this morning, Diane prayed for those missionaries kidnapped in Haiti. Are we not right to judge that the men in Haiti who kidnapped those missionaries are evil people? Are we not right to judge that homelessness, racism, child pornography are all wrong. And we declare to the world that that the world would be a better place without them. Consider the other things we judge. We judge people for wearing masks or not wearing masks or being a Republican or being a Democrat. Right, we do this, don't we? Every day we judge what we think is wrong with the world. Now let me ask you, does not God who made everything, including you and me, does he not have the right to judge humanity? Of course he does. God would not be a loving God if he turned a blind eye to sin. You understand that. And so judgment, cleansing, purging, these are all necessary things that must take place for a perfect world to exist. Just as Chip and Joanna say, those pea green cabinets have to go, um, so too God says all that is opposed to him must one day go. 
We see this in the very first verse. In that day, the Lord, with his hard hand and great strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Here, this Leviathan, this dragon of the sea, will be forever punished. This is apocalyptic language. Leviathan represents God's prime enemy, Satan, and, and the sin and corruption that has entered into this world. When we read the very second to last chapter in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, it describes this renewal to come, and it says, begins with the words of promise. Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. This old, way, this old earth, the way of the evilness, must pass away. It must die, and there must be no more sea. Sea is symbolic of, of sin. Before God comes down with his new creation, the old one must be judged and removed. And so God's enemy and all the spiritual forces that battle against God and his vineyard will be forever removed. Verses 10 and 11 from our text describe how sinful culture and society will also be judged. For the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. The fortified city is a symbol of the world's might as it's arrayed against God. On that day to come, God will make it to be desolate. No longer will there be false idols to worship, career, success, you name it. Not only will God judge society as a whole, but also individual people too. How are those who are judged and punished described? Halfway through verse 11, we read this. For this is a people without discernment. Interesting. That's what's wrong with them. They lack discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no faith. What are we humans to discern? We are to discern that there is a God who formed us, who made us, and he's the one we must turn to for life. If you lack discernment to see that there is a God who made all things, if you persist in, in, in insisting that life is really all about you and your own glory, then there will be a day in which God says to you, I, I will show you no faith. Listen, this is, this is not God saying, I don't have compassion. This is not saying, I will not forgive people. Remember what he just said earlier. Twice he repeated it. This is his emphasis. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. The problem isn't with God. He will forgive everyone who turns to him and says, let me make peace. The problem isn't with God. It's with those who insist they do not need his mercy. People who cannot discern their need of grace from God will forever deny their need of it, and in the end, they will get their wish forever. Listen, if you say no to, the, to God in this lifetime, then sadly, you will get your wish for all eternity. So have discernment. So you were created and formed by God for his glory. Allow God to make peace with you through the cross of his Son. God is the restorer, and to restore, he must first judge all that is wrong with the world. But then comes glory. Isaiah describes a great harvest and a great celebration. In verse 11, we see that God's people, his vineyard, produce a great harvest. Whereas the boughs of sinful society are dried up 
and stripped of leaves. In verse 12, we see that God's people, we see them producing a bountiful harvest. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of the Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one. We will be gleaned. We're going to bear fruit. God is singing about how fruitful his people will be. My friends, God delights in his pleasant vineyard. And the vineyard of God cannot help but produce fruit for his glory. And with this great harvest, there's also a great celebration. Look at verse 13. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. Uh, Liza will strum her guitar. Uh, and those who are lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. In our passage, God promises a day to come when his vineyard, his people will no longer be pruned. We will be there. We will celebrate. God's people will gather from all over the world. Even those who have died, who were lost in Assyria, will rise to new life in Christ. For all eternity, we will experience the joy of being God's pleasant vineyard as we display his glory forever and ever. This morning we've seen that the people of God are his treasured vineyard. God himself is our keeper, our pruner, our restorer. So let us entrust our lives to his care. And think about it. How much more should we, the New Testament church, the vineyard of God, how much more shall we sing of it? In Isaiah's day, think of it, Jesus Christ was just a faint shadow of God's grace on the distant horizon. But for us, oh, to us who live now, we've seen Christ and we've heard him. Earlier, Hannah Faye read from John chapter 15. It's, Jesus was about to go to the cross and die. He had promised that he would rise again. And after he rose, he said that he would send the Holy Spirit to dwell in his people. And then God's vineyard would really be able to bear fruit. How? Abide in me. Jesus declared, listen, Jesus says, I am the true vine. In other words, don't attach yourself to anything else in life. Everything else will fail. You will run to wood. I am the true vine, and my father is a vine dresser. There we go, the pruner. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, so there would be more fruit, so it would bear more fruit. Then he says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, listen, you can do nothing. And so Jesus says to them and to us, abide in me. Find your life in me. Find your happiness in me. Find your life's purpose in me. He warns us saying, apart from him, you can do nothing. It's impossible to bear fruit. But when you abide in him, he bears wonderful fruit in us and through us. Listen, Grace Church, we have a calling, a calling from our Savior. What is it? A calling to what? To bear fruit? No. What is Jesus calling us to do? Abide in him. Jesus doesn't say, go bear fruit, go be good Christians, go do this and that, take on the world for me. No, Jesus says, abide in me, come close to me. Then the fruit will take place on its own naturally as I work in you. 
abiding in Christ is to be the focus of our lives. To abide in Christ means we center our lives on him. It means we draw near in the spirit and faith and prayer and devotion with great dependence. We draw near for grace. And listen, as the grace of Christ courses through our veins, kind of like sap through wood, through a branch, it is then and only then that we do bear fruit. If we focus on the fruit, we will fail. If we focus on abiding in Christ, we cannot help but bear fruit. Grace Presbyterian Church, we are God's pleasant and fruitful vineyard. Let us abide in Christ's love and let us sing of it. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you now and we confess that we're foolish to live any other way than by abiding in you. All of the things we can attach our lives to causes us to just run to wood, fruitless energy, gone after our own glory. Help us to see more clearly that the best life is lived with you at the center. Help us to have the courage to just trust this. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you prune us. We ask that you, whatever we need, you need to do, you do it soon to, to make us more like Christ, to, to strip us away from self-dependency so that we may lean fully and trust our lives to Christ, we pray. Amen.